welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. I know you appreciated the ministry of the bell ringers today, and a little bit of the history of the bells is I believe they were uh, acquired at the time of Pastor Klatt's ministry here. So how long ago would that be? And uh, so, but bells need maintenance, you know, and so this year they were maintained a little bit. Uh, We're thankful that uh, we have the ministry of music with our young people. And uh, we're thankful for the ministry of Bayside School. And you remember a few weeks ago we mentioned about a roof repair. We wanted to give an offering to Jesus to keep the little lambs dry when they're learning over there. And if you've made a commitment to the Lord on that, uh, it would uh, gladden Jesus' heart to receive that on Thanksgiving Sabbath at the door following our worship service today, or if you need to, a little time throughout the month of December. Well, it just about takes your breath away when you realize what it means there in John chapter 4 and verse 31, because we find a prayer there that just about is a turnaround from the kind of prayers that we're used to praying. And instead of in their stance of asking the Lord to give them something, the Apostle John catches the disciples in John 4.31 in a casual snapshot as they are praying for the Lord to receive some support from them. And, you know, you might as well have water run back uphill you feel as though this is kind of like a backward prayer in comparison to most of the prayers that we offer ordinarily like you and me. But John 4.31, we have the disciples saying to the Savior, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him. So this is a prayer saying, Master, eat. Master, you eat. Now, almost all of the prayers that the Lord receives in his great communication center up there in the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary are just the exact opposite of that, if you think about it. Master, will you please give us something to eat? God is thought of as man's great Santa Claus. It's hoped that with God, why Christmas can be every day for us. Thanks, Lord, for what you gave me yesterday. And now for today, I need this, that, and the other. And thanks again for keeping me in your mind. Amen. That's how most of our prayers go. But when we learn to widen our horizons just a little bit and we begin to pray for somebody else, I'm sure that it must gladden God's heart. Fortunately, such prayers are offered for others, prayers for someone to be healed, for someone else to be fed, even prayers for the whole world. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray for others, didn't he? And these prayers are good. People who can pray for others, that's a sign of growing up spiritually. 
A child makes tremendous progress when they can pray, please, Lord, give a toy to that child over there. That's tremendous progress, isn't it? But too often, even when we ask for something for our fellow men, we still are not very far removed from the center, the circle of me, myself, and I, because if our prayer isn't self-centered, at least it is for someone else within our circle, and each of us knows that everyone who's in that circle will eventually get their turn. We human beings are just like the pets at feeding time. We feel our dependence on the master of the household. At prayer time, we line up together along the fence, looking toward the big house, hungry for another handout. It's fortunate for us that the Lord is on the other end of the line, and he's gracious, and he is happy to give us our daily bread. But if we don't ask the Lord for things and for ourselves and for others, what can we pray about, someone asks. Well, the disciples' backward prayer here opens up a whole new world of understanding in prayer. Master, you eat. And the master rarely hears prayers like this one. A prayer in reverse gear. Master, you eat because we sense that you are hungry. You've been on a very long and hard journey, and today it is hot and dusty. Look, we've been at the shops in town here, and we have bought bread and butter and milk and raisins and figs and almonds. We have a tasty feast in our journey here. Master, we have been thinking about you, and we understand how you feel, and we know it's no fun to be tired and hungry. Master, you eat. That's a different kind of prayer than Jesus is normally used to hearing. And it's rare for a child who thinks of giving uh, the gift giver anything. Children usually give parents nothing on Christmas. He may even give, however, Santa Claus credit for his Christmas gifts, but he finds it hard to think in terms of his life being centered on Santa. Fat, jolly Santa, you know, he's up there in his North Pole toy factory. How can Santa need any toys. He's got all of them that he needs. What else could he want? And it's almost as difficult for us to imagine the Lord Jesus as wanting anything. He's got everything. Why should we concern be concerned about his needs? He's infinitely wealthy. Who of us could give him anything that he needs unless We think like the children in the Christmas ads who leave Santa a sandwich and a bottle of soda when he comes down the chimney. We give our little tithes and our offerings, but who can seriously imagine that these trifle offerings enrich the Lord? We expect perhaps a momentary smile of indulgent approval after which he passes on in his infinite plenitude and All knowledge and all power with crowds of eager angels hovering around him to do his beck and call. These are his secretaries and aides at his beck and call. He is is more rich than that old King Croesus of ancient times. How in the world could our little tithes and offerings add add a featherweight to God's treasure? But here the Son of God is sitting at the 
well at Samaria, in human poverty at Jacob's well. And do you think that Jesus was just acting like he was thirsty as he was sitting there? He really was thirsty. Does he have to stay thirsty? Can he really feel thirst as we do? And if so, why should he not, by a touch of his finger, transform that old well into a refrigerated drinking fountain? He could if he had wanted to. If he really feels hungry, why not speak to a stone and transform it into a loaf of bread, a golden brown one at that, freshly baked bread? The power to do it was at his command, and yet there he sits, thirsty and hungry. Reminds me of a story about in the days of the Model A Ford when Henry Ford once took a party of his wealthy friends out for a drive in the country. You know, Ford was one of the richest men in the world, and he could have summoned a chauffeur to drive a fleet of his Lincoln limousines for this little drive out into the country, but instead... He was nostalgic, and he decided to go with the, take his friends out in that old Model A. Or, pardon me, he took a Model T this time. And as often happened with his customers' automobiles, this little Model T machine broke down on the road. And Ford was unequipped to repair it himself, and so the famous car manufacturer found himself dependent on the services of a village mechanic. Ford was determined that he wasn't going to give in to all of his guests who were poking fun at him. Old Henry resisted the temptation to pick up the telephone and call back to the factory there in Dearborn and to ask for the Lincoln sedans to come out and rescue the party. No, Henry Ford faced the breakdown as any motorist would have to, and he waited for that village mechanic to repair the car. And his guest, his guest just enjoyed the spectacle of the world's most famous car maker playing incognito to the unsuspecting country mechanic. And his friends said to the mechanic, you just charge him, charge him plenty, urged his passengers. He's rich, he can pay for it. Well, then the mechanic said, why doesn't he drive a good car then? Ford submitted himself to... Uh, the vagaries of the road, the breakdown of the automobile, just like all of his uh, all of his customers did when they had it happen to them. Car sub- Ford submitted himself to that, and Jesus submitted himself to all of the vagaries of human life that we go through. The hunger and the thirst. Jesus could have summoned an army of angels to rescue him at a moment. He wished. Several years later, there was a mob that was brandishing swords and clubs, and they shoved him along to Caiaphas' house, and he told his disciples about the rescue mission standing ready should he flash a help signal heavenward. We read it in Matthew 26, 53. He said, don't you know that I could call on my father for help And at once he would send me more than 12 armies of angels. Isn't a good thing that we are not capable of yielding to such a temptation of calling upon 12 legions of angels to deliver us in our hour of trial.
because I can tell you, I would keep those angels busy. I would keep them real busy. Getting me out of difficulties, as popular imagination long ago conceived, of fairies running impossible errands for privileged people. One wonders if the angels enjoyed watching the creator of the world sitting there by the well in Samaria, waiting for someone to come along to offer him a drink of water. Must the Lord of heaven and earth sit there on a hot day as helpless as any other pilgrim? Yes, he must. The rules of the contest with Satan require that he lay aside all of his divine advantages. And so Jesus chooses not to do anything supernatural to relieve his wants. Even should he starve, he refuses to call headquarters and to ask for a fleet of angel limousines to rescue him. He must meet life's problems exactly as we must meet them. And the Father entrusts him to the hospitality of the human race. And if the human race fails him, he must perish as anyone else. And when men at last crucify him, he dies there on the spot. The infinite Son of God has surrendered himself to be enmeshed in our finite helplessness. Quite a risk, wasn't it? Quite a risk that the Father took when he sent his Son to be the guest of sinful humanity. Did the Father make a mistake when he submitted himself to humanity and their hospitality? Fortunately, no, he didn't. Our disciple heroes, and there were other good people who took good care of Jesus, the disciples said, Master, eat. Thank the Lord for the disciples' hospitality to this divine guest. And very likely, that Samaritan woman who had had a visit with earlier herself was one who extended hospitality to him. Can you imagine how she must have felt later that evening when Jesus was a guest in her village? Why, Master, I've just remembered. You asked me for a drink. You asked me for something to drink. I forgot all about it when you began talking. Can you forgive me? And what about lunch? Here's some lunch for you. Have you had anything all day? I'm going to cook you a good, proper dinner right now. (laughs) There were people like that who took care of the needs of Jesus. They thought about him. Why, I think any good-hearted woman would react the very same way. Not once, but probably many times, the disciples prayed that backward prayer, Master, you're hungry. Please eat. You get some rest, Lord. You've been working long hours. You go to bed. We will stay up and finish the dishes. We'll do the laundry. You take some time off. You get those new clothes that you need. Probably there were times when the disciples thought of their master that way. It's likely that living with him for three and a half years, they found many occasions for thinking about his needs. We read of social occasions when dinners were served in Jesus' honor in homes where he was welcomed as a guest. 
Anybody with simple human compassion who met him on his earthly path would soon find a way to pray to him a backward prayer, Master, you eat. But we're not so much concerned now with stories of long ago. Just let us meet him, let us see him as he is today. And then our childish, self-centered prayers are going to certainly appear to be badly out of date. The disciples' backward prayer, Master, you eat, will give us a glimpse of even more astonishing prayers that are yet to come from human hearts like yours and mine. When I said that the Father entrusted his Son to the hospitality of the human race, I said something serious to think about. What it means is that the Father brought himself to trust that our fallen human nature would escape the rut of its self-centeredness and respond to the needs of his Son. And this is what lies behind this backward prayer of the disciples, Master, you eat. Sending his Son to this world presupposed on God's part a backward faith to begin with. Faith is usually what we think of as man's part to have and to use. It is we who have faith in God, for it is he who is trustworthy. But what a staggering thought to realize that God has faith in man, or he would never have sent his son to us. This faith of God in man was exercised before the foundation of the world, when the Father and the Son agreed together in to make an infinite sacrifice for man should he fall into sin. When John said, we love him because he first loved us, he could also have added, we believe in him because he first believed in us. And Paul has the same idea in Romans 3.3 when he says, What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief, shall their non-belief make the faith of God without effect? You see, God has faith. God has faith. He believes that his love will inspire faith in you and me. And there's a play on words here in the original, and it's beautiful. Shall man's non-faith cancel God's faith? Which of us could bring himself to trust a converted thief enough to put in his hands every cent that we possess and expect him to keep it for us? Could you trust human nature that much? If you were trying to evangelize a band of notorious kidnappers, could you bring yourself to entrust your newly son, born son or daughter to their arms while you left for an extended trip overseas? That illustrates what God did in sending Jesus as a baby to this world. Just look at the baby in the cattle pen at Bethlehem. Most people in the town were sleeping as well that night, not caring whether he survived or not. 
And it was a rough way for a little baby, any baby, to get started. But there were some people who did care about this little baby. And they proved that God made no mistake when he entrusted his precious son to human hospitality. And although humans eventually rejected and crucified him all along his way, there were some whose kindness spilled over into a concern for the needs of the Son of God. It's beautiful, a beautiful sight to see Jesus cradled as a baby in the arms of a tender, loving human mother and to see affectionate friends linger near him all his earthly days, even to the end. Well, you say, what about us today? Do you imply that we too can get beyond this pet at the feeding time center of motivation? Can we actually conceive a prayer that is centered on Christ instead of centered on ourselves? I don't have any way of knowing what's in your heart, except as I look inside of my own heart. But I must own up to the truth that most of my prayers are very selfish, very self-centered. What has kept me going as a Christian has usually been my anxiety for my own personal salvation. What has driven me too often to keep the Sabbath to pay my tithes and offerings, to turn down the pleasures of the world has been mostly my own desperate need for eternal security and salvation. I have been the one who is hungry with my hand out to God. My soul has been too little to think or even to feel big enough to say or to pray, Master, you eat, because I've been so centered on myself. Day after day after day, it has been, Master, I'm hungry. Feed me. Perhaps you're beginning to suspect that you and I have something in common. I may even assume that I'm not talking to a fellow sinner. If so, let's face up to it that this motive of following Christ in order to save our own skins or to achieve security or to get a reward in heaven or to avoid punishment in hell isn't strong enough to withstand real temptation, is it, when it comes along? Such a motive is really going to collapse, even though it may enable us to stay in the church for some years. Our friends may even say of us, if anyone will get together, get to heaven, certainly so-and-so will get to heaven. Look at their faith. But we will have overlooked one strategic fact. The one who professes Christ from a self-centered motivation will sell out at appropriate price. They will have their price at which they will sell out sometime. And while there's a few that will hold out a little bit longer than others, waiting for a higher price to be bid from others, Satan knows how to maneuver us into a situation where the bidding will eventually reach 
our figure. And for some, the price of selling out may be pathetically low. Just the humdrum temptations of day-to-day living. For others, it may be a fascination and a greed for money, or the sweet ease of luxury, or the thrill of honor and prestige. And for still others, it may be forbidden sex. The The anticipation of the moment of temptation will just jam out the signal from heaven's broadcasting units And the thought of expectant reward in heaven or of dreaded punishment in hell will just fade out of mind at the temporal temptations. And if both signals are on the same wavelength of an appeal to self, is it any wonder that desire drowns out the other? Both zero in on the self-centered circle of where our temptations come from. In this area of temptation, a self-centered religious faith is as strong as a sandcastle that is battered by the ocean breakers. Such a faith has always been useless. But the tests of the past were not always severe enough to show up the cracks in the faith. A New Testament writer coined a very brilliant phrase to describe the futility of such self-centered faith. He called it being under the law. If Paul had been a cartoonist, he might have pictured the self-centered, fear-motivated, reward-earning Christian as being pinned under a giant boulder labeled the law. Self-centered faith. Another way of putting it, is that he is under the old covenant. Millions of sincere Christians today need to break loose from being under the law, which is serving God either from the fear of hell fire or of the hope of reward. It's a futile way of life. It's ludicrous, but so tragic that we can't laugh, although Satan probably laughs at us, in anticipation of our going over to his side in the end. In these last days, all selfish faith is headed for an almost overwhelming test. For many, unless they see the truth now, it will mean the ultimate defeat. And to our superficial judgment, the self-centered faith may have been good enough for our ancestors. Give me the old-time religion. might have been good enough for them as we sing the spiritual but it can never endure the test of the final crisis unless it is purified of the dross of self-centeredness. The test of the book of Revelation is talking about is going to come to every living soul on this earth, and it will probably probe every soul for his, his or her weaknesses. It is a severe test. It is called the mark of the beast. And millions who, de- who today would be shocked at the suggestion of selling out their souls to the clever enemy of Christ have no idea what they would do if the bidding were to go high enough. The test will produce a heart-gripping fear, unprecedented in human experience, the anxiety 
of a million sleepless nights of worry will be distilled into this final attempt of Satan to defeat God's followers by fear. This final allurement of the appeal to security will play on the whole range of human temptations. It will be Peter all over again tempted to deny that he knows Christ. And whether we sell out to Satan now for a trifling low bid of sensual temptation or hold out just a little bit longer and sell out in the highest bid of Satan's final perfected temptation supreme, this makes no difference in the end unless we find deliverance all who are content to remain under the law, under the boulder of the law, will eventually deny and betray Christ. Someone may say, I feel rather lost now. I admit I'm self-centered. And my prayers revolve around myself and my little circle that I know. I can't deny I'm in this religion largely for what I hope to get out of it. But what else is there for me to do? First, before we talk about doing anything, there's something that we need to see. What is it that we need to see? The Son of God crucified upon a cross. But how do we see it? There is no movie that was made of Calvary to see. If there had been a television crew on Calvary, shooting the entire scene just as it happened, even maybe a full-color DVD wouldn't enable us to see the Calvary cross. Most of us, if it was put up on a screen, would look at it as entertainment and buy popcorn to eat and something to drink while we were watching it. In fact, the people who actually saw the real event at Calvary weren't converted merely by gawking at it. If seeing the physical event were necessary to convert us, we would have an excuse for complaining to God because He hasn't shown us a DVD of the crucifixion scene or reenacted it for us to watch. Why didn't he keep a film of it for us, ready to program it on the world's television stations when TV should be invented. Because seeing Christ crucified is something greater than any camera crew can capture on film. And although 11 disciples saw it happen with their own eyes, a man who was not present on that occasion came to understand it at last. He saw it focused. We will let his eyes be ours. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. We thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 
That equation is a very simple disarming in, in its simplicity. If one died for all, that's the same as saying that had he not died for all, all would now be dead. Now you get that? If one had not died for all, all of us would be dead right now. One died for all equals we all deserve to be dead. The life we live is not our own. And with x-ray perception, Paul saw you and me crucified when he saw Christ crucified. That's what Paul saw. And he wasn't even there at the crucifixion. So the implications of that become staggering. What Paul says that if Christ had not died for us, we would be in our graves at this very moment. And a little reflection will show that it wasn't some kind of pious sentimentality that he was expressing, but a cold, hard fact. You think back 2,000 years ago, you consider the corruptions of that degraded world that Jesus died in in the Roman world. For Jesus, when he died in that corrupt world, he actually preserved it. (laughs) And it survived the corruption of the Roman world till this very day. Think of your own life now. Be honest and perceptive enough to trace every good thing about your life to its ultimate source. A millionaire's son inherits a fortune, but he has the sense to recognize that he inherited it rather than earned it. But suppose a man has the intellect and the ability to earn a fortune. Did he not also inherit the ability to earn a fortune? Ultimately, there is little difference between inheriting a fortune ready-made and inheriting the ability and the circumstances to make a fortune. The gospel simply says in both instances, the fortune is not really yours. If Christ had not died for you, all that you would have as yours would be the grave. You have inherited a life and abilities that have been given to you by God. Same with your educational opportunities and your your earning capacity. So what the far-seeing apostle really says that you find it, once you can see and appreciate this gift of love, then it's impossible for you to live a self-centered life anymore. It's impossible. If you have really seen the cross and what it means for you, you can no longer live a self-centered life. Following our Lord is no longer forcing ourselves to try to do good, what is right, punishing ourselves. The Lord is seeking to woo us to himself as a husband woos his bride. Edward was pacing the platform at the railway station at Knoxville, Tennessee, and he was waiting for his beloved Lita, who was on the next train arriving from Michigan. And their wedding was going to be that very evening. Their wedding so eagerly anticipated the bridegroom had arrived. He was so excited about it, he came two hours early before the arrival of the train. And when the train finally pulled in, Edward watched anxiously until the last passengers disembarked, and Lita did not come out of the train. Well, 
she was mischievously hiding herself inside of the train. She was looking out through the window to see his reaction. And she saw him in great distress on his face, clouds of disappointment, like on a spring morning. And finally, Lita couldn't stand the disappointment on her lover's face anymore. And so she came rushing out of the train and she threw her arms around Edward. With respect to his bride-to-be, Christ endures disappointment beyond description because of our human indifference toward what he has given to us. Are we hiding ourselves from him? Are we making him sad? Are we making him disappointed? Must it ever be so that God's people be so self-centered without a thought for him? Where is our heart response that is worthy of his love for each one of us? Would it not be the cruelty of ages for us to continue holding Jesus at a distance, keeping him waiting, unsatisfied, hungry for us? What can we say to him? Is there some word of appreciation that we can express to Jesus? Master, you deserve what you died for and what you paid for. You deserve me. You deserve this life of mine. You can no longer live for yourself when you appreciate what he paid for you. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.